right, this morning we are going to uh, start with the first of a 36-part series. <laughs> yeah, no, I really have no idea how long this is going to go on. Um, anyway, we are starting in on the Enlightenment. Um, if you recall from a few of our previous sessions, we talked about the scientific revolution that was beginning in Europe in the 1600s, and it continued uh, into, and really, um, it has continued to the present day. And one of the reasons why we're going to be spending a lot of time on the Enlightenment is that the things that Enlightenment thinkers were developing in this time period affect you in your daily life today in 2021. Uh, not everything they did still impacts you, but much of what they did uh, impacts are what we tend to think of as the modern world, although probably really we should call it the postmodern world, which we'll get into much later. Uh, but I'm beginning today, let's see if I got that. Well, am I doing this wrong? Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so the two figures we're gonna focus on today are Rene Descartes and Blaise Pascal, and you may have heard of Descartes. He is the guy who invented the Cartesian coordinate system. Remember back to eighth grade math? Can we remember back that far? Graphing equations on the Cartesian coordinate system? I still have nightmares about it. <laughs> yeah. And Blaise Pascal, you, his name might not be as familiar to you, but he was a very important, uh, and these are both French thinkers, scientists, um, who came up, up with some pretty revolutionary stuff. Um, they were scientists as well as philosophers. And uh, in the case of Blaise Pascal, a lot of what he applied his efforts to were in the area of religion. So he was not only a scientist, but he was also a theologian and a great writer. So the Age of the Enlightenment, which was also known as the Age of Reason, or simply the Enlightenment, was an intellectual and philosophical movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe during the 17th and 18th centuries. And it also had a profound impact on the British American colonies in the 16 and 1700s. The Enlightenment included a range of ideas centered on the pursuit of happiness, the sovereignty of reason, evidence of the senses as the primary sources of knowledge, or in other words, the approach known as empiricism, the pursuit of scientific knowledge, and the rejection of traditional authority and religion. So the Age of the Enlightenment was preceded by and closely associated with the scientific revolution. And earlier philosopher scientists whose work influenced the Enlightenment included Francis Bacon, which we talked about earlier, his scientific method that he developed, Blaise Pascal and Rene Descartes, both of whom are uh, French. And some of the other major figures of the Enlightenment include David Hume, Immanuel Kant, Leibniz, John Locke, Montesquieu, 
Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Adam Smith, Hugo Grotius, Baruch Spinoza, and Voltaire. And while these names might not be all that familiar to you, again, many of their ideas will be. And many of these um, scientists and thinkers worked in the major European universities. Rene Descartes' rationalist philosophy laid the foundation for enlightenment thinking. He attempted to construct the sciences and mathematics on a secure metaphysical foundation. And he also developed what he called the method of doubt, which he applied to philosophic areas. So in other words, Descartes was starting from, I'm not gonna talk about what I know, but I'm gonna question everything, and I'm gonna start from a point of doubt in my pursuit of knowledge. But this led to a dualistic doctrine of mind and matter, which we'll get to later. And his skepticism was refined by John Locke's essay concerning human understanding in 1690 and David Hume's writings in the 1740s. And Locke and Hume influenced a lot of the American thinkers and leaders of uh, the war for independence in America. They influenced Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin very much. So Descartes was a rationalist as well as a skeptic and a dualist. So in philosophy, rationalism is the view that regards reason as the chief source and test of knowledge or any view appealing to reason as a source of knowledge or justification. More formally, rationalism is defined as a methodology or a theory in which the criterion of the truth is not sensory but intellectual and deductive. So in other words, Descartes is thinking, I'm just gonna use my mind to reason through, starting from a point of doubt, reason my way through to the truth. Descartes applied rationalist thinking to all branches of knowledge. He was a French philosopher, mathematician, and scientist who discovered analytical geometry Again, think back to high school math. You have an equation. You have to solve, you know, there's unknowns in the, that you have to solve for. And then your teacher says, I want you to graph this equation, uh, you know, and then talk about the geometry of it. So he combined algebra and geometry and showed the relationship between the two. Because uh, prior to Descartes, geometry and algebra were considered totally separate branches of mathematics. He also spent a, a large portion of his working life in the Dutch Republic, initially serving in the Dutch army. One of the most notable intellectual figures of the Dutch Golden Age, Descartes is also widely regarded as one of the founders of modern philosophy. He was also a devout Roman Catholic who believed that faith could be supported by reason. Descartes held that all existence consists in three distinct substances, each with its own essence. There's matter. It possesses extension in three dimensions. So in the three-dimensional material world, we have matter. There is the mind that possesses self-conscious thought. In other words, as human beings, we have minds and we can think about ourselves. And then there is God and he possesses necessary existence. 
And I'm not going to go into the lengthy, detailed arguments as to why Descartes thought these three things were kind of the building blocks of reality. Um, it gets pretty weighty. But Descartes' philosophy introduced a dualism between mind and matter, or between mind and the body. Descartes clearly identified the mind with consciousness and self-awareness and distinguished this from the brain as the seat of intelligence. Okay, and this is, this is a dichotomy or a difficulty or a dualism that continues to be a problem to this day for modern scientists, neuroscientists, and uh, neurologists and psychologists. You know, we have our minds, we can think about ourselves, we have self-consciousness, but where is our mind? How is it connected to the physical part of our being? Is it just up here? Is it the same thing as the brain? Or is it something more than the brain? So he was the first to formulate the mind-body problem in the form in which it exists today. Applying an original system of methodical doubt, he dismissed apparent knowledge derived from authority and the senses. He set up a new system based on the intuition that when he is thinking, he exists. His famous quote, cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am, sums up his approach. His metaphysics is rationalist based on the postulation of innate ideas of mind, matter, and God. His physics, however, and physiology, so he, he, you know, he was interested not just in mathematics, but he was interested in physics, you know, the branch of science in which we study how the natural phenomenon, the, the things that we observe in the universe, how those work, and also physiology, how the human body works. But he, he based that on sensory experience. So he's, you know, on the one hand, he's saying, we have to just think with our minds and we will come to truth. On the other hand, in certain areas, when we're investigating the material world, we will rely on our senses and we are empiricists. We're gonna gather data, conduct scientific experiments, and see what the data tells us. During the period when he was developing analytical geometry, he also developed a universal method of deductive reasoning based on math that is applicable to all the sciences. Except nothing is true that is not self-evident, divide problems into their simplest parts, solve problems by proceeding from simple to complex, and then recheck the reasoning. In addition, Descartes insisted that all key notions and the limits of each problem must be clearly defined. So Descartes worked in a time of religious upheaval in Europe. Uh, during the Thirty Years' War, uh, Catholics and Protestants were killing each other, um, you know, right and left, and it went on for about 30 years. Um, and the Roman Catholic persecution of the French Huguenots, the Protestants in France, was coming to a climax with death or exile as the end of the Huguenots. The Calvinist Protestants were opposed to Descartes, and he found it difficult to publish some of his writings because of them. So Descartes is doing his work at the same time Calvinism is flourishing, uh, or trying to flourish in France, but 
doing better in Switzerland. Uh, if you recall, Calvin had to go to Switzerland uh, to seek refuge. The Jesuits, remember the Jesuits from the uh, Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation? Well, they were also opposed to Descartes' philosophy. So the Netherlands proved to be just about the only place with relative freedom from religious persecution. Descartes also advanced at least two proofs for the existence of God. The final proof presented in his fifth meditation begins with the proposition that Descartes has an innate idea of God as a perfect being. So in other words, he intuits, he has a sense that God exists and he is perfect. It concludes that God necessarily exists because if he did not, he would not be perfect. Um, and if you explore this, you know, if you're interested in this, um, you know, you can look up stuff on the internet. As you get further into it, you begin to discover some of what Descartes doing is really boils down to circular reasoning. Um, but Descartes had, I guess you could say, some legs to stand on in church history. This ontological argument or this argument for the being of God it was actually introduced by the medieval English logician, St. Anselm of Canterbury, and it lies at the heart of Descartes' rationalism. So Descartes was not as innovative, perhaps, as he might appear. But again, he says, we're going to have knowledge about something that we're interested in, solely on the basis from re reasoning. We're going to have these intuitions, these innate ideas about it. We're not gonna rely on sensory experience. And after all, if you're talking about someone like God, how do you prove God exists just from material things? Pretty tough to do. But work in the sciences required careful construction of experiments and collection of data, so we must rely on empiricism for the material world. Descartes also held religious uh, views and liberal views for his day. He advocated religious toleration for all, not just Protestant and Catholic Christians, but for the Turk. And in those days when Christian authors talked about the Turk, what they meant was basically all non-Christians, uh, Muslims, Jews, atheists, whoever. So he advocated religious toleration. Later in life, Descartes worked on the branches of mechanics, medicine, and morality. Mechanics is the basis of his physiology and medicine, which in turn is the basis of his moral psychology. This is a really key point here. Descartes believed that all material bodies, including the human body, are in essence machines that operate by mechanical principles. He dissected animal bodies to show how their parts move. He argued that because animals have no souls, they do not think or feel. Now today I think we'd have to differ with Descartes. It's apparently clear that animals think and feel on some level. Whether or not they have souls, people argue about that endlessly. He also described the circulation of the blood, but came to the erroneous conclusion that heat in the heart expands the blood, 
causing its expulsion into the veins. Remember from last time we talked about William Harvey and his efforts to explain how blood circulates through the body. Um, and, uh, you know, there were many scientists at this time period seeking to understand the human circulatory system, and Descartes was one of those. He had an erroneous system, like many of the others did. Descartes argued further that human beings can be conditioned by experience to have specific emotional responses. So here he begins to delve into what we today would call uh, psychology. And the idea that human behavior can be conditioned is in essence uh, what modern people would describe as behaviorism. Descartes believed, for example, that he had been conditioned to be attracted to cross-eyed women because he had loved a cross-eyed playmate as a child. When he remembered this fact, however, he was able to rid himself of this passion. This insight is the basis of Descartes' defense of free will and of the mind's ability to control the body. So his conclusion was, outward circumstances may have caused me to think and feel certain things, but I have enough control over myself that I can move beyond these outward forces and I can change how I think and feel myself. Descartes' morality is anti-Jensenist and anti-Calvinist in that he maintains that the grace that is necessary for salvation can be earned and that human beings are virtuous and able to achieve salvation when they do their best to find and act upon the truth. So if you remember way back when we were talking about Calvinism and we talked about Arminius and the different views between Calvinists and Arminians, and then we're moving a little bit further ahead in time, and now we're coming to a period in which in the Roman Catholic Church, there was a movement called Jansenism. And for us today, Jansenism seems more like a Calvinist or Protestant way of thinking. Jansenist Roman Catholics advocated for the necessity of grace for any good act. In other words, you can't do good things without the grace of God moving in you. The infallible, infallible efficacy of grace, in other words, grace will always produce a good work, and the absolutely arbitrary character of predestination. So Jansenists sound a lot like Calvinists. Descartes' optimism about the ability of human reason and will to find truth and reach salvation contrasts starkly with both Jansenist and Calvinist views. Descartes was accused of holding the view of Jacobus Arminius. Again, thinking back to our discussion about Calvin, uh, Arminian thinking was opposed to Calvin, Calvinist thinking and so this Dutch theologian, Arminius, uh, basically asserted that salvation depends on free will and good works rather than on grace. So you've got these ideas moving around, you know, in this part of Europe, especially in the Netherlands, but throughout France as well. And you have the Roman Catholic Church persecuting Protestants. And in, in particular, the, the Roman Catholic uh, authorities in France are getting ready 
to expel the Huguenots, the French Protestants, once and for all. And then you have this guy, Descartes, causing problems. Free will, according to Descartes, is the sign of God in human nature. And human beings can be praised or blamed according to their use of it. People are good, he believed, only to the extent that they act freely for the good of others. Such generosity is the highest virtue. Descartes was Epicurean in his assertion that human passions are good in themselves. So he had a very optimistic view of human beings. And um, we haven't really talked about the ancient Greeks, but there was an ancient Greek school of philosophy called the Epicurean School, and they basically asserted that pleasure is good and the highest virtue is to uh, pursue pleasure. And they didn't necessarily mean that you should be a hedonist, that you're just, you know, uh, selfishly pursuing whatever pleases you. They assert many Epicureans uh, tempered their, you know, moved away from hedonism by saying we should, we should pursue the good in life. That will bring the most pleasure. And so in some ways he was similar to this ancient Greek idea. Descartes was an extreme moral optimist in his belief that understanding of the good is automatically followed by a desire to do the good. Now, if you think about <laughs> the opening chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans, um, you can see that Christianity uh, has a very different viewpoint in terms of how human beings uh, you know, tend to follow uh, what is in their nature. And Descartes believed passions are willings. Uh, it, it's, you know, the idea that because I want something, it is the same as if I willed it, which a lot of people would, you know, probably argue with. Descartes was also a Stoic. So there was an ancient Greek and Roman uh, school of philosophy known as Stoicism. A Stoic individual just bears up under tough times and endures hardship and pursues good even when that is difficult. So Descartes was a Stoic and he believed that rather than changing the world uh, by pursuing their passions, human beings should learn to control their passions. Again, kind of going back to this idea of mind over matter. I should know what is good, I should will to do good, and I should control myself to the extent that I really will do good things. But the last years of Descartes' life were difficult. Uh, as uh, his life went on, you know, again, the religious persecutions occurring in Europe uh, caused great difficulty for him, and eventually he went to Sweden to serve in the court of Queen Christina. Descartes said that in a Swedish winter, men's thoughts freeze like the water. He had come from a part of France that, uh, you know, had, it did not have nearly the severe climate that Sweden did. Uh, his health uh, had always been rather fragile, and it was difficult for him in Sweden. Uh, the queen required him to get up and, and present to her or appear before her every morning at 5 o'clock. <laughs> Tough. 
<laughs> While delivering legal statutes that he had written for the queen, at 5 a.m. on February 1st, 1650, he caught a chill and he soon developed pneumonia. He died in Stockholm on February 11th at the age of only 53. One of the most important figures in Western European philosophy and the sciences had died quite young. Descartes' papers came into the possession of Claude Clercelier, a pious French Catholic who began the process of turning Descartes into a saint by cutting, adding to, and selectively publishing his letters. <laughs> so, you know, we're gonna rehabilitate Descartes and make him acceptable. So this cosmetic work culminated in, or ended in 1691 in a massive biography by Father Adrian Baillet, who was at work on a 17 volume Lives of the Saints. Uh, but even during Descartes' lifetime, there were questions about whether he was a Catholic apologist, primarily concerned with supporting Catholic doctrine, or simply an atheist. So is he a Calvinist? Is he a Jansenist? Is he an Arminian? Or is he just so skeptical we have to label him an atheist? Some said he was concerned only with protecting himself with pious sentiments while establishing a deterministic, mechanistic, and materialistic physics or science. All the papers, letters, and manuscripts available to Clercelier and Baillet are now lost. But in 1667, the Roman Catholic Church made its own decision by putting Descartes' works on the Index Librorum Prohibitorum. So he is, you know, right up there with Galileo and lots of other famous people. He is on the index of prohibited books that Roman Catholics could not read. And they did this on the very day that Descartes' bones were ceremoniously placed in the church of saint jean du Mont in Paris. During his lifetime, Protestant ministers in the Netherlands called Descartes a Jesuit and a papist which, you know, if you're a Protestant and you call someone those things, that's a big insult because they're saying you're essentially an atheist. He retorted that they were intolerant, ignorant bigots. Up to about 1930, a majority of scholars, many of whom were religious, believed that Descartes' major concerns were metaphysical and religious. But by the late 20th century, you know, there's been revisions in how we think of Descartes Numerous commentators had come to believe that Descartes was a Catholic in the same way that he was a Frenchman and a royalist. In other words, that he supported the king and did not have Republican sympathies. That is, he was a Frenchman by birth and a Catholic by birth and by convention. Descartes himself said that good sense is destroyed when one thinks too much of God. He once told a German protege, Anna Maria von Sherman, who was known as a painter and a poet, that she was wasting her intellect studying Hebrew and theology. He also was perfectly aware of, though he tried to conceal, the atheistic potential of his materialist physics and physiology. To some, Descartes seemed indifferent to the emotional depths of religion. A key aspect of Descartes' legacy is the idea that the ground or starting point of truth 
comes from within man. Instead of an emphasis on the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, the Bible, as the foundation of God's revealed truth about God, man, and the universe, Descartes relies on the mind of man. The idea of I think, therefore I am is thus diametrically opposed to the I am of God in the scriptures. While Descartes may not have taken his ideas to their logical conclusions, postmodern, post-Christian man certainly has. All right, and now we turn to Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and Catholic theologian, also French. He laid the foundation for modern mathematical probability theory. He formulated what came to be known as Pascal's principle of pressure in fluid mechanics. In religion, he proposed that one must experience God through the heart rather than through reason. The establishment of his principles of intuitionism had an impact on such later French philosophers as Rousseau, Bergson, and the 20th century existentialists. Pascal was born in eastern France, close to the Swiss border. He lost his mother, Antoinette Bagon, at the age of three. His father, Etienne Pascal, who also had an interest in science and mathematics, was a local judge and a member of the noblesse de robe. Pascal had two sisters, the younger Jacqueline and the el elder Gilbert. In 1631, when Pascal was eight years old, the family moved to Paris. Etienne, who was also respected as a mathematician, devoted himself henceforth to the education of his children. While his sister Jacqueline, born in 1625, became known as an infant prodigy in literary circles, Blaise proved himself no less precocious in mathematics. In 1640, at the age of 16, he wrote an essay on conic sections, Essay pour les coniques, based on his study of the now classical work of Girard de Sargue on synthetic projective geometry. And I attempted to read some of this stuff last night. It's pretty difficult. Uh, but this guy was basically a math whiz at 16. The young man's work, which was highly successful in the world of mathematics, aroused the envy of no less a personage than the great French rationalist and mathematician René Descartes. Between 1642 and 1644, Pascal devised a machine that he called the Pascaline to help his father, who in 1639 had been appointed the local tax administrator at Rouen, in his tax computations. The machine was regarded by Pascal's contemporaries as his main claim to fame and with reason, for in a sense, it was the first digital calculator since it operated by counting integers. The significance of this contribution explains the youthful pride that appears in his dedication of the machine to the chancellor of France, Pierre Segui, in 1644. And this is a picture uh, drawn by Pascal. Uh, the top section is looking down on the machine, 
and the bottom section is looking at it from the side to see how it operated. And if you're interested, you know, if you're interested in mechanics and early methods of computation, um, you can invest, investigate that more on the internet. Until 1646, the Pascal family held strictly Roman Catholic principles, although they might have been characterized as nominally religious. An illness of his father, however, brought Blaise into contact with a more profound expression of religion. He met two disciples of the Abbe de Saint Cyran, who as director of the convent of Port Royal, had brought the moral and theological concepts of Jansenism into the life and thought of the convent. So again, here is a, a French thinker who's encountering Jansenism. And again, as we saw, it has some similarities to Calvinism, and some characterized it as a 17th century form of Augustinianism in the Roman Catholic Church. So some saw it as drawing upon the tradition of St. Augustine. It repudiated free will, once again, this, you know, pushing back on this idea of uh, man having, being, having the ability to freely choose God without a work of grace from God in his heart. It accepted predestination and, that, and taught that divine grace rather than good works was the key to salvation. So Pascal, as a young man, is coming under the influence of this new, uh, these new ideas in religion. Pascal himself was the first to feel the necessity of entirely turning away from the world to God, and he won his family over to the spiritual life in 1646. His letters indicate that for several years, he was his family's spiritual advisor. And this is something that's uh, kind of a tradition in the Roman Catholic Church, and it continues to this day to have a spiritual advisor uh, sometimes they refer to it as a spiritual director. In essence, a mentor who is going to help you uh, grow in your religious life. But he had a conflict within himself between the world, on the one hand, and the ascetic life, the life of a monk living in a monastery and devoting all of his time to worshiping and serving God. This was not yet resolved. Absorbed again in his scientific interests, he tested the theories of Galileo and Evangelista Torricelli, an Italian physicist who discovered the principle of the barometer. And so here we have uh, a 19th century engraving of Pascal standing on the roof of a building with some helpers uh, setting up a barometer, a mercury barometer, and doing experiments. So he reproduced and amplified experiments on atmospheric pressure by constructing mercury barometers and measuring air pressure, both in Paris and on the top of a mountain overlooking Clermont-Ferrand, which is in eastern France. These tests paved the way for further studies in hydrodynamics and hydrostatics. So hydrodynamics and hydrostatics would involve studying how water um, behaves. While experimenting, Pascal invented the syringe 
and created the hydraulic press. He developed Pascal's principle, which is pressure applied to a confined liquid is transmitted undiminished through the liquid in all directions, regardless of the area to which the pressure is applied. His publications on the problem of the vacuum in 1647 and 48 added to his reputation. He also studied and wrote on the equilibrium of liquid solutions, on the weight and density of air, on the arithmetic triangle, and the calculus of probabilities. So he began to do early work in, in what we today would refer to as statistics. But for Pascal, being spiritual meant living a life apart from the world. He viewed his scientific and mathematical work and studies as worldly. Given the religious and social climate of his day and the Catholic basis of his faith, it is not hard to see how Pascal would view science as completely unrelated to religion. The idea that he could pursue his scientific work to the glory of God was not something he could see. By the end of 1653, however, he had begun to feel religious scruples, and he experienced a religious conversion, this time a deeper one. He described it as the night of fire that he experienced on November 23rd, 1654, and he believed it to be the beginning of a new life. He entered the Port Royal Convent in January 1655, and though he never became one of the solitaires or monks, he thereafter wrote only at their request and never again published in his own name. The two works for which he is chiefly known, Le Provincial and the Pensees, date from the years of his life spent at the Port Royal Convent. Pascal wrote 18 letters dealing with divine grace and the ethical code of the Jesuits in defense of Antoine Arnaud an opponent of the Jesuits and a defender of Jansenism. Arnaud was on trial before the Faculty of Theology at the University of Paris for his controversial uh, religious writings. And Pascal's letters defending Arnaud became known as the Provincial Letters. They included a blow against the relaxed morality that Je the Jesuits were said to teach, and that was the weak point in their controversy with the convent of Port Royal. Pascal freely quotes Jesuit dialogues and discrediting quotations from their own works, sometimes in a spirit of derision and sometimes with indignation. In the last two letters dealing with the question of grace, Pascal proposed a conciliatory position that was later uh, to make it possible for the convent of Port Royal to subscribe to the peace of the church, a temporary cessation of the conflict over Jansenism in 1668. The Provincials were an immediate success and their popularity has remained undiminished. Pascal's writing style was praised for its variety, brevity, tautness, and precision of style. As Nicolas Boileau, the founder of French literary criticism recognized, they marked the beginning of modern French prose. Pascal's letters show the passionate conviction of an, a man in love with the absolute. 
He saw no salvation apart from a heartfelt desire for the truth, together with a love of God that works continually toward destroying all self-love. For Pascal, morality cannot be separated from spirituality. After this, Pascal decided to write a Christian apologetical work that would further refine his thoughts. In this work, Pascal shows the man without grace to be an incomprehensible mixture of greatness and abjectness, incapable of truth or of reaching the supreme good to which his nature nevertheless aspires. A religion that accounts for these contradictions, which he believed philosophy and worldliness failed to do, is for that very reason to be venerated and loved. The indifference of the skeptic, Pascal wrote, is to be overcome by the means of the wager. And the wager is this, you may have heard of this before. If God does not exist, the skeptic loses nothing by believing in him. But if he does exist, the skeptic gains eternal life by believing in him. Pascal insists that men must be brought to God through Jesus Christ alone, because a creature could never know the infinite if Jesus had not descended to assume the proportions of man's fallen state. Later, he co composed the prayer for conversion that the English clergymen, Charles and John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, were later to regard so highly. Plagued by illness from 1659, to his death in 1662, Pascal gave himself over to helping the poor and remained cloistered, pursuing the ascetic and devotional life. And he died quite young, unfortunately. So that concludes what I have for Descartes and Pascal. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Sydney? Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Sydney said that for Descartes, everything that a person knows is what he himself knows from his own experience, from the world around him, and his own reasoning. So it's very much a man-centered philosophy. Again, I think, therefore I am. That's where I start. And if I have, you know, if I start from a position of doubt, I'm going to doubt everything and I'm going to work from that position up to a place of, well, how do I know anything? If I, if I doubt everything, how do I get to knowledge? That's kind of tough to do. So he assumes that his reasoning is, you know, his mind is not going to lead him astray. You know, he's making some basic assumptions about human beings. They're innately good for Descartes. That's an important, you know, and that's the thing about all philosophy. Everybody starts from a set of presuppositions, basic assumptions they are making about God, the material world that they see around them, the universe, and themselves. Um, and, you know, regardless of where they end up, they, you know, they all, you can always take a philosophy and work it back and work it back 
to what are those foundational presuppositions. And that's a really good thing to do when you're, you know, when you're confronted by a new way of thinking. You know, well, this person is saying this. Do I believe what they say, or am I going to think about that critically and examine it? What are their presuppositions? What are their basic assumptions that they are starting from? Teresa? Yeah. <laughs> so Teresa said if it had been, uh, you know, culturally acceptable during that time, maybe he would have, you know, been more overt with his, you know, what appears to us a kind of a fundamental atheism. Sure, he might have been. Uh, again, he, you know, he's, he's working in a time when he's seeing Protestants and Catholics fighting each other. There's a great deal of persecution. If you, you know, come up with ideas that are simply too radical, both sides are going to come after you. And, you know, so hence he's having to go to the Netherlands and hide out there. And then he has to go to Sweden and hide out there. Um, yeah, he's, you know, he's pretty atheistic in his philosophy. And again, the, you know, obviously some Roman Catholics of his day wanted to rehabilitate him and make him seem like a son of France that we can be proud of. And you know, we can say this great mathematician and scientist and philosopher is one of our own. Um, yeah, but uh, in my initial slide, um, I have the quote, ideas have consequences. And that's actually a title of a book written by a guy in the 20th century. Um, but, I think this is something we all know to be true. Again, if you want to be Cartesian about it, you know, I'll say my intuition leads me to believe that, yes, ideas have consequences. What people believe affects their worldview, and what they believe and their worldview shapes their actions, their thoughts, their words, and how they function in life or attempt to function. Um, and certainly the ideas that Descartes coming up with, others are going to expand upon. And much of this thought is going to go in the, in the direction of sec what we today would call secular humanism. Yep. Sid. Right, so is, you know, what is real? That, that becomes another question. What is real and what is not real? How do we determine what is real? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's obviously, Daniel? I, I mean, I, I guess they were, you could say, middle class for that time period. Um, you know, uh, his father basically homeschooled him. And his father was a smart man. He was a lawyer. He was a scientist, a mathematician. His sister was a genius. Pascal was a genius. I, and sometimes I think, you know, if a person is really smart, um, 
Sometimes they find resources on their own. They educate themselves. They, they look for opportunity, you know. He's got, a, he's got enough means that he can conduct experiments. He can buy, go out and buy materials, you know, construct a mercury barometer, tell a glass maker to make, you know, a, a slender glass tube. And, you know, so he's got some means. I, I would say he was probably middle class for that time period. Yep. Well, it's getting towards 1020, so I'm going to let us go here. If you want to know more about this, there's tons of stuff on the internet, and you can, uh, you know, turn yourself inside out studying French philosophy from the 17th century. <laughs>